Praise the Lord. You know, during this, the last few moments before we closed off the worship, I had a sense that someone was supposed to bring a word. And I was waiting, and I felt like the Holy Spirit was saying to me, someone is supposed to bring a word, but they're not here. And it's not a criticism of that person as much as it is, if we look around, some of us aren't here right now. We need to be praying for each other. The enemy is working double time to keep people out, keep people away. Some of it is an attack on their life circumstances uh, and, and they're being distracted enough that they're going to say, I don't have time for church, I have to stay home, I have to deal with this, or whatever it is, but it's an attack. Uh, and they're not recognizing it as such. And they needed to be here tonight because God wanted to minister to us through them. It's so important that we not neglect to assemble together, right? Um, one of the, I think, really bad things that's coming out of this COVID-19 season is there are a lot of Christians who are saying, hey, I can stream from home. In the same way that they're saying, I can work from home, there's no need for me to go back to the office, they're saying there's no need for me to go back to the physical location, the church, I can just stream from home. Uh, if you live in the Dayton area, like I, for me personally, if you live within 45 minutes to an hour, you're close enough to come to church. You really don't have an excuse to not come. I mean, maybe in the middle of January during an ice storm, you don't come that night. Uh, but really, we, we, our value system has to change, is really what it comes down to. Pastor Jim's talking about this a lot lately, how we need to reevaluate how we're uh, what we're spending our time on and what we're valuing more than our time with Christ. And it's the same thing in terms of, you know, hey, is driving an hour to get to church and being in the place where God is moving and doing and so forth, is it worth it? And of course, we should be coming to the conclusion it is. Amen? And so it, it's a bit of sadness that God wanted to say something. And maybe you're watching this after the fact and you know it's you. You know, don't take condemnation. Just say, okay, I'll be there next time. Amen? Amen. So uh, if you want to open with me, uh, we're going to go to the Acts. Acts, chapter 9. <laughs> Sometimes the voice cracks. 46 years old and it still happens. Hallelujah. We just got back from Canada one week ago, which feels weird that it, it just went by so quickly. And we had a really great time. Hello, all you Canadians watching us tonight. Thank you for joining us. We love you. We miss you already. And uh, can't wait to come back up and spend time with you again. Okay. So Acts chapter 9, we're going to pick it up here and just read the next 19 verses. So if you want to follow with me. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecute you me? And he said, Who are you? Lord, and the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you persecute. It is hard for you to kick against the pricks. 
And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what will you have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told you what you must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prays. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him, and he, that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have, heard many of, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he has done to the saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on your name. But the Lord said unto him, Go your way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house, and putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared, appeared unto you in the way as you came, has sent me that you might receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received his sight forthwith, and arose and was baptized. And when he had received meat, he was strengthened. Then was, certain day, then was Saul certain days with the disciples, which were at Damascus. Hallelujah. At the end there it says, when he had received meat, he was strengthened. I'd like to point out, he wasn't eating salad and strengthened. It was meat. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's pray. <laughs> That's a joke. So, there's a couple things I want to draw out of this passage. In particular, we're going to start with, with Paul here. I just want to look at a few things, and, and, and then we're going to move into a time of prayer. And I think part of one of the things that we need to be doing tonight is indeed interceding for people who are part of this body here locally, as well as those of you who are uh, our streaming friends, that uh, we'd be interceding for each other. But first, I want to get into this. So, looking at, at Paul also known as Saul here, uh, we see here that Paul has an interaction with the Lord that he wasn't expecting, right? Would you agree? It says that, in fact, that he was astonished. And part of his astonishment is the fact that um, he truly believed that he was doing the Lord's work. He was convinced that he was on the right side of things when it came to his opposition of this way, correct? Uh, if we were to go over to Philippians 3, we're not going to, but I'm going to tell you in Philippians 3, 6, uh, it says here that concerning the law, he was blameless, meaning that he kept the law as taught by the Pharisees. And the Pharisees at the time, you know, he was a Pharisee, and the Pharisees, what they were is they were legal experts. They had, um, what they would do is they would debate the oral law, the oral traditions, and they would challenge it and work with it and, and study it out, and they were considered the legal experts of the day. Whenever there was a matter that where people might have a disagreement, whether or not something was lawful or not, 
the Pharisees often had the final word, the final say-so. And he was one of those people. And as far as the Mishnahs, so these were the, the teachings of the, the, the Pharisees and the rabbis, and according to the oral traditions, uh, you know, the Pharisees believed that they really knew what they were talking about. One of the things that, that they, they believed that they had was that at the same time as God was giving the written word or the law at Mount Sinai, there was also some oral traditions that were being handed down. And they believed that they had both. That through the, the centuries and through the generations, this had been carried by, by them, and that now they were experts in this oral tradition. And so they had not just the written word and the, and the law as far as the Torah and the Ten Commandments, but they had all these additional rules and regulations. And really, they could be defined as, a lot of them were, fence laws. So, you know, if the law said, you know, don't do this, well, then they would add another law. Well, before you can do this, you'd have to transgress this law and that law and the other law. So just don't do all these other things, you'll be fine. Okay? And so they had come to a place of uh, creating all these burdens for the people, right? The rabbis, these Pharisees, what they would do is they would weigh matters and arrive at verdicts. And then from that point forward, it would become a law that they would expect people to keep. And the Pharisees had a lot of, um, uh, were well regarded. People esteemed them highly because they saw them as righteous. They saw them as holy. And, and they saw them as people who kept God's law in a way that they couldn't, right? They're just a regular Jew, looked at them and said, there's something special about them, I could never do this. So I just want to give you an example of one of these laws at work. When I was in uh, Israel in 2005, uh, I happened to be there on one of the days was the Sabbath. And uh, the hotel we were staying in, uh, you know, and it, this is what's interesting, is you go to Israel and you have some people who are practicing Jews, and then you have others who are secular Jews. And, and they're just as secular as people we would see on the street here in terms of they believe nothing, they may be atheist, or they may have, you know, there is a God or so forth, but they don't keep the law, they don't do anything that's related to the law, and so they're just, they're just Jewish people. But then you have other Jewish people who are very devout, they keep the Sabbath, they're very, very careful to keep the Sabbath, and you're not allowed to do any work at all on the Sabbath. And you remember there was, in fact, uh, uh, an instruction given by Moses that you couldn't even collect sticks on the Sabbath. I mean, and one guy was stoned for doing so. He was put to death for collecting sticks on the Sabbath. Well, when I was in this hotel in Jerusalem, there was an elevator. I was waiting for it to go up to the whatever floor I was on, and it, the doors open, and I get on, and then I go to push the button, and all the buttons are lit. And I'm thinking, what's going on here? And then the doors close, and it went up one floor, and then the doors open, and then the doors closed themselves, and it went up one floor, and the doors open until finally I got off. Come to find out that this elevator on the Sabbath was put into automated mode and it would just go up and down and open and close on every floor, up and down, all night, you know, basically for the 24-hour Sabbath because if you were a practicing Jew obeying the law, you couldn't even push the button to call the elevator. You couldn't even push the button to tell the elevator. To me, it creates all sorts of questions. What is considered a work? And see, this is what the Pharisees would do. Somebody would go to the Pharisee, well, uh, Rabbi, Rabbi, if I do such and such, is that considered a work? And then they would debate it and to come to a conclusion, come to a decision. My goodness. Just, and if they said, yeah, that's a work, you can't do it anymore, there you go, just add that to the pile of things they weren't allowed to do on the Sabbath. 
But it says in Philippians 3, Paul says of himself that he was blameless when it came to the law. Meaning what? Meaning that as far as the pharisaical mishnas and oral traditions, he kept it all and he was blameless. And even if he, let's say, he transgressed the law in one place or another, he would make sure to give the proper and appropriate uh, offering to cover that, that transgression. Amen? He was so zealous for God that he believed that he was in right relationship with God. He believed that everything he did was profiting God's kingdom. Amen? Uh, in Galatians 1, 14, uh, he says that he profited in the Jews' religion above his equals, more zealous of the traditions of his fathers than his peers. He was so zealous for God. I mean, we even see in terms of uh, uh, Acts chapter 7 and 8, in terms of how he behaved, we see that coming forth. But he said, he said to Timothy, this zeal that I, that I persecuted the church with, I did so ignorantly. Okay? He did so in terms of he truly believed that he was honoring God with the way in which he was behaving and the way in which he was pursuing Christians, believers, and, and destroying them. Okay? Well, let's go here to verse 5. Of course, verse 4, we'll start there. And he fell to the earth, and he heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And in verse 5, his response is, Who are you, Lord? So immediately, he recognizes this has to be God, but I don't recognize you. I don't recognize you because I've been serving you, but this interaction right now, I don't understand it. What's happening? Who are you? He recognizes it's God, but doesn't recognize who God is. And, and you know, I mean, part of it is he's thinking, wait, I've been serving God faithfully. I've been doing all that is right as far as the law is concerned. As far as the traditions of the fathers, I've been more zealous than anyone else. Why is God intervening with me or against me in such a way? What's going on? What's happening? You know, God does not seem to be pleased with me. He knocked me off my horse. Here I am lying flat. And then God, of course, Jesus says of him, or says to him, why are you persecuting me? What? Persecuting you? What? What? I don't understand. And I can just imagine how confused he is in that moment to hear these words coming from God. And maybe wondering, I, I don't know God as well as I thought I did. And of course, Jesus answers in verse 5, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And I can just imagine the shock that that was to him. To find out that the one he has been opposing... I, I, I mean, even think about this. He was alive. He was around when Jesus was ministering, when Jesus walked on earth. No doubt he knew of him. No doubt he had been in countless meetings plotting for his destruction and his death. I have no doubt in my mind that he celebrated the day he was crucified and thought we finally got rid of this, this blasphemer, this, this son of hell and all the rest. Because they thought he was you know, of Beelzebub, right? I have no doubt he celebrated, and yet now he's finding out, what? You're God? All these things you said about yourself, they were true? Wow. And then, of course, Jesus says, it is hard for you to kick against the pricks. And that's really, oh man, that's a tough uh, King James phrase. It really just talks about, you're opposing my will. You're opposing uh, my motivating force. You're, by, by coming against the body of Christ, the church, this way, you're opposing me. You, it's hard for you because 
Paul, you think you're having victory over these believers, but in fact, you're coming against me. You're not coming against these people. It's me that you're opposing, and you will not win. Amen? So, of course, verse 6, it says here, Paul was trembling and astonished. Wow. Trembling. Why was he trembling? <laughs> we, can, we can understand that he would be astonished. He was shocked. He was in surprise. He truly believed that he had been faithfully serving the Lord by persecuting the church. So, of course, he'd be astonished. But to be trembling, well, of course, he just found out he's been opposing God himself. Never mind that he'd been, you know, flipped off his horse. Never mind the fact that everything that he thought was right and true turns out it's wrong. He just realized that he's been contrary, working contrary to the will of God, the creator of all things, the one who has the power to determine his very eternity, and Paul is justifiably afraid. In fact, he's in terror. He's being confronted by God. Now let's put ourselves in Paul's shoes for a moment. Or rather, let's put ourselves in his sandals. Um, you're Paul. And you're confronted by Jesus. And in that moment, you realize, wait a minute, uh, we just killed Stephen. And I was one of the chief ones saying, yeah, it's time for this guy to die. I gave my approval as a Pharisee. I gave the justification and said, and by my authority, we put this guy to death. And I was opposing Jesus. And I've been dragging... Believers, men and women, from their homes and throwing them into prison. Oh my. Can you imagine the weight of the realization just, just cr coming crushing down on him? And just imagine, okay, so we're, we're in his shoes for a moment. You thought you were the hero and you just found out you were the villain. You thought you were being the answer to the world and you just found out you've been actually fighting for the other side, opposing the Lord. Fear, dread, and terror gripping his heart. Now this is something, as Christians, I think in this century, we don't know much about. Because there isn't a whole lot of fear, dread, and terror of the Lord in the body of Christ today. And that's one of the major problems that we have. This is one of the things that I believe that God is addressing through the... Uh, God's judgment series that Pastor Jim is bringing forth is that there is a fear, a dread, and a terror of God that should exist in our hearts that isn't there. There is a judgment that falls on sin and it doesn't exist in the body of Christ. You know, First Peter chapter 4.17 has been quoted so often we should know it off by heart. But judgment comes first in the house of God. Why is it coming first to us? Because this is where the fear the dread and the terror of God should exist. That when we're confronted by God, when God says this has to stop, we weigh it out as to whether or not we feel like it. That's wrong. Paul is being confronted by God, by Jesus, and it says he's trembling. He's in fear and dread and terror. When confronted by sin and disobedience, or when we are contemplating an act of willful sin, or worse, when we remain in a lifestyle of sin, it's because there's no fear, dread, and terror of God. Hebrews 10, 30 and 31, we've heard it many, many times over the last several weeks. For we know Him that has said, Vengeance belongs to me. You know, the, in the context, 
This is not talking about God avenging us when someone wrongs us. This is talking about God avenging himself when we wrong him. I will recompense, says the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Do we know that? Do we know what it is to be in fear of falling into the hands of the living God? Because we're, we're stubbornly unrepentant. Where is the fear, the dread, and the terror of a righteous God? In Acts 5, right? We know the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And we know that the outcome of their death, it says that a great fear came upon the church. And great fear, the word in the, in the Greek, fear means to be afraid. And it means to be exceedingly afraid, fear and terror. So fear came upon the, the believers and upon everyone who heard the story. And it's a great fear, an exceeding fearful terror. But it says great fear. So this word great means exceedingly or mega. So you put the two together, great fear. In the Greek, the picture is exceedingly mega, exceedingly fair, fear and terror. People were in fear. And what was it that they did, Ananias and Sapphira? They believed they could lie to God and get away with it. Because that's what Peter said. You didn't lie to people, you lied to him, to the Holy Spirit. Uh, Leviticus 10, we read about Nadab and Abihu, who brought an unholy fire before the Lord, and the fire of God came out and consumed them. And, and we could go throughout the Word and see many different places where there was fear that came upon people because God's judgment came forth. And we don't see that in the body of Christ today where there is a fear, a terror, and, and, and a dread of a holy and righteous God. And we see it in terms of how believers, in general, how we see people live. When we're given instructions, we weigh it out whether or not we feel like it. You know, Pastor Jim, for... Okay, Jamie and I have been here a little over five years now. And I would say there's probably been at least a dozen, maybe 20 times that Pastor Jim has instructed us to have pen and paper handy when we're in church. Because Holy Spirit may speak to you and you need to write it down. And no hands... But how many of you have brought pen and paper? <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> Someone's holding a piece of paper. And basically, when we don't do it, what we're saying is, a, uh, oh, well, I forgot, and that can happen, okay. But generally speaking, what we're saying is, I don't really believe God is going to speak to me, or that what He has to say to me is not important enough for me to record it. But if we had a fear and a dread and a terror of God, we would weigh His words far more important than we do, Amen? So Paul's response, fear and trembling and astonishment, he says to Jesus, what would you have me do? What would you have me do? He's humble, he's contrite, he lays himself before the Lord. That's the right attitude, right? You know, let's say the fear and terror and dread of God were to fall on this place right now. The only right answer would be to lay ourselves out before him and say, Lord, what would you have me do? You know, last week, uh, which would be August 1st, okay? So last Sunday morning, God's Judgment 5, Part 1, Pastor Jim showed us a video, and it's that video of, I think they call themselves the Gay Choir or something like that, and they're basically, they're singing a song about base, of essentially saying, you say that our lifestyle is sinful, but we oppose you, we're coming against you, and we're coming after your children. And their movement 
is rightfully named a pride movement. They are kicking against the pricks. They are coming not against you and me. They're not coming against the body of Christ when the body of Christ says, hey, this lifestyle is sinful. They are coming against Jesus. They are opposing Jesus. That song, as much as it might offend us or bother us or grieve us because we see that these are people who are going to hell, it's not really coming at us. It's coming against Jesus. They are opposing Christ Himself. They are kicking against the pricks. And here's the crazy thing. And I think people don't always realize this. But in John chapter 16, verse 8, Jesus said, Holy Spirit will come and He will convict the world of sin. They know they're in sin. Because God is competent. He is capable. When He says, I will convict the world of sin, that means they are convicted. Amen? That means somewhere deep in the recesses of their being, there's a part of them that knows they're in sin. Now, they've covered it over with drugs and alcohol and lascivious lifestyle and, and they've seared that conscience or that part of us that can be pricked by God or, and convicted by the Holy Spirit, but it's there. And one day when they stand before Jesus, if they have not repented, they won't be able to say, hey, it's not fair, I didn't know. They will know when they stand before Him. They will know that moment deep on the inside of them when they knew the truth and they kicked against and opposed Christ. They had hardened hearts. But Paul, he lays himself out and says, what would you have me to do? Amen? So let's drop down. Let's go to verse 10. Because we know what happens. Paul, of course, he goes over to Damascus and he's fasting for three days. No food. No, no water whatsoever. For three days. And I like this this account of what happened here. Because you see, Jesus intervened. He interrupted Paul's plans. And he could have, he could have without any assistance from anyone, he could have healed Paul himself. He could have you know, touched his eyes and so forth. But he chose to minister to him through one of his disciples, Ananias. So, verse 10, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias... And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prays. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on your name. So, uh, Ananias, he's only mentioned in the Bible twice. He's mentioned right here in Acts chapter 9, and he's mentioned again in Acts 22, when Paul is giving his testimony in Jerusalem. You remember he goes to Jerusalem, and then he's in the temple offering, offer, uh, bringing some offerings, and then some people from the Asian uh, synagogues, they see him, and then they get really riled up, and they, you know, they basically freak out, and then the centurion comes and rescues him. On and on. Anyways, he gives his testimony. And in that moment, he makes mention of Ananias. A devout man from Damascus. That's it. The only two times we ever hear about Ananias. And yet, he is accomplishing a great thing here in terms of the kingdom. Right? Paul, um, yeah. 
So I want to pull out two things. Number one, Ananias was afraid, and legitimately so. Turn back one page, at least in my Bible, one page, to Acts 8, verse 1. And Saul was consenting unto his death, referencing Stephen. And at that time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing or or dragging men and women, committing them to prison. So Ananias, he's afraid because he knows by reputation who this Paul is. He even says, uh, uh, we have heard by many of this man how much evil he has done to the saints at Jerusalem. And sure enough, that's what he's doing. Uh, wreaking havoc uh, meaning, means to treat with cruelty and violence, right? And he was dragging people off to prison. That Paul was doing that. And he said of himself in Galatians chapter 1, he said, You have heard of my conversation or my conduct in times past in the Jews' religion, religion how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it, destroyed it. Beyond measure means excessive and extreme. He was excessive and extreme in his violence, in his cruelty against the church. And here, Jesus is saying to Ananias, I want you to go minister to him. Well, let's be honest. Anyone in this room would be happy to go into a Muslim country right now and go into a mosque and go minister to an imam? <laughs> Come on. Right? Where they, they behead Christians over in those nations. You want to go minister to one of those people? Jesus speaks to you in a vision. He says, Scotty. And Scotty says, Here I am, Lord. All right, get board a plane. You're going over to deepest, darkest, wherever in the Middle East. And you're going to go meet some dude named... And you're going to minister Christ to him. <laughs> okay, in all honesty, what? What did I eat tonight? <laughs> right? So he's afraid. And we can all relate and say, Yeah. Well, I mean, we wouldn't even have to travel to the other side of the world. There are people here who we would be scared enough, right? (laughs) But he's not just afraid of Saul for what Saul could do to him. Saul has demonstrated that he's willing to destroy anyone named who has named the name of Jesus. He has busted down doors and gone into people's homes and hauled off men and women and so forth. So Ananias, no doubt, is thinking, okay, I'll go and maybe he kills me, but then he comes after my wife, my children, my loved ones. Wow. Right? Hallelujah. He feared Saul, and rightfully so. But, of course, Jesus says, go your way, for he is a chosen vessel, and on and on. And in verse 17 it says, and Ananias went his way. So he was afraid of Saul, but he feared God more. And when God said, when Jesus said, go, okay. And he went. Amen? So the first thing I wanted to draw was one that he was afraid, and he had reason to be. He had reason to say, wait a minute, I'm concerned about this. Please help me understand. But then, when Jesus spoke to him and gave him the understanding, he obeyed and he did so immediately. 
You know, he could have said, there's reasons why I don't think this is really you, Lord. I'm not going to go. How many times have we had a prophetic word? We're in a church service, and I know that God is speaking to my heart. You should share a prophetic word. This is the word. And then you sit there and you wonder whether or not it's really him because you're afraid to share a prophetic word here where no one's going to kill you. No one's going to throw stones at you. At least I hope not. Or what if Ananias had said, well, Lord, I would go, but it's going to have to be next week. I got a lot going on. I just started the pig roast. You got to watch that thing. You can't just walk away. And I got people coming. I'm going to go. I'll go minister to Saul, even though I don't really want to, but I'll go next week. No, he had to go right away. He went immediately. Amen? Amen. When God gives us an instruction, we do not have the authority to say no. We don't have the authority to alter the instruction or to deviate from it. We have to do what he's told us to do. Amen? But God never asks us to do anything we can't do. Amen? So when he was telling Ananias, go minister to Saul... It's because Ananias could go minister to Saul. Ananias had what it took, Christ going with him, to minister to Saul. Amen? So the main reason, I'll speak for myself, the main reason why I don't always obey right away, and by the way, delayed obedience is disobedience, the main reason I don't obey is because usually I'm not sure it's him. I may not like what he's asking me to do, and I may feel uncomfortable doing what I think he may be asking me to do, but ultimately the conclusion is, well, I'm not really sure it's you, so I'm not going to do this. And I think most of you can relate to this. Whether it's, you know, you're somewhere and suddenly you see someone and you're paying more attention to them than you would normally. And you realize, I'm drawn to them for some reason. Lord, do you want me to go minister to them? Well, I don't even know the first thing to do. You know, some of the videos that we see of, of evangelists, they just walk up to people and they begin to, to minister to them. And some of us feel uncomfortable watching that because we would never want to do that. So the main reason why I don't do things is because I'm not always sure that it's him. So what do I have to do? I have to get to know his voice. I need to spend more time with him I need to spend less time in front of the TV, less time in front of the computer, less time on my phone, or whatever it is that's a distraction to us, whatever it is that we're giving our time to, and spend more time with Him. Because we don't hear Him as well as we know we should. Amen? And ultimately, we need to fear Him more than anyone or anything else. I want to close with this, and that is that we're, we're still in that preparation time in terms of revival is upon us. But part of why revival is upon us is because we are indeed in the last days. In the last days, persecution will increase. And part of our preparation is getting ourselves ready for what persecution looks like and what persecution feels like and what it does to us. Right now, in fact, this just happened in July. There was a, there's an American, he's over in London, and he was on the streets ministering, preaching, and teaching the gospel of Jesus. And he was arrested. He was arrested because at one point he made mention of the fact that 
Churches that preach and teach that homosexuality or transgenderism is okay, these are not churches of Christ. And somebody was offended with it and they called the police, the police came and they arrested him. They said something, and he was charged with something about, I don't remember exactly how it's worded, it's in legalese, but essentially is, if you hurt someone's feelings, we're going to arrest you. That's what it boils down to. They arrested him. And they arrested him for preaching the truth of the gospel. That's what it comes down to. Here in this nation, we still have freedom of speech. We can say horrible things and they can't arrest you. We can say the truth and teach the word of God and they can't arrest us. But I'm telling you, the days are numbered because the the enemy is looking for ways to change the laws in this nation so that they can arrest us, so that they can throw us into prison. I have no doubt in my mind that they will circumvent the laws at some point because that's what the enemy is going to do. So we must spend more and more and more and more time with Christ. We really need to measure. It's like Pastor Jim keeps saying. We need to really reevaluate what we value in, in our lives today because there's, a, there's on the horizon, it's coming, the time when we won't be ready if we don't get ready now. Amen? Now's the time to get ready. Hallelujah. So let's take some time. Let's take 30 minutes to pray and intercede. And I'll be right back up in 30 minutes. Hallelujah. Praise you, Lord. We're going to close in prayer. I wanted to share just very quickly. I recognize that in 2021, some of you may not use pens and paper. You may use electronic devices. It's the principle I was addressing of not being ready to record So some of you may have held up your laptops or whatever. Are you ready to record what God has to say for you, to you? Um, The other thing is, we understand that there is a love and affection that we receive from God, right? We understand that. We understand that we can climb up on His lap and just receive from Him that love and affection. But I remember when I was a child, you know, I, with my parents, there was always a lot of love and affection. I received and gave a lot of hugs and kisses. I remember sitting on their laps all the time. I remember seeing them and just walking over and climbing up. Or, you know, they'd pull me up. Great moments. But if ever I said to my parents, you're stupid and I don't like what you have to say, I'm telling you I knew the fear and dread of my parents. Okay? That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about the total absence of God's love and intense love for us. He sent Jesus after all. But there's that other side of we don't tell God how things are going to be. He tells us. Amen? Amen. So if you want to stand with me, we'll close. Those of you watching tonight, thank you for joining us. We, uh, we know that some of you, this is your home church. And we understand that. We thank you that you join us. Those of you watching after the fact, hopefully you're blessed. Hallelujah. Father, we love you so much. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for, Lord, just your chastisement. Lord, that you love us so much. Lord, that you are willing to keep us so close to you, even when it means sometimes, Lord, rebuking us and and, and correcting us. We thank you for it, Lord. Lord, we give you all the glory, the praise, and the honor. Father, again, we just lift up the people in this body. Lord, we thank you 
that you are revealing yourself to us in such a mighty and powerful way. We cancel every plan and scheme and assignment of the enemy to disrupt us, to harm us, to cause us grief. We rebuke you in the name of Jesus. And we speak peace over our lives. Lord, those people who should be here and aren't for whatever reason, circumstances, demonic attack, or anything else, Lord, I thank you for the work that you're doing in those lives even now. Lord, that those people will come and be where they're supposed to be. And Jesus, we give you all the praise, the honor, and the glory. Amen.